Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and the only thing worse than dragons are lazy stereotypes about ugly Americans. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, if we kill the male, we kill the species. <laughs> this is Space the Nation, the podcast where we look at science fiction through the lens of international relations and symbolic interactionism. Today, we'll be talking about 2002's Reign of Fire, in which dragons consume ash and Matthew McConaughey eats scenery. Christian Bale is in the movie as well, brooding. After this, we are doing David Lynch's edition of Dune in anticipation of Denis Villeneuve's forthcoming movie of Dune. Then we're potentially going to be doing Lawrence Wright's The End of October. We might be doing Space Sweepers. And there is the Fantasy Island reboot uh, on deck as well. I will add that End of October will mark the end of our hot sci-fi summer and a return to occasional bleakness, Dan, because End of October is not a fun book. It is no, apparently a very good no, book. Not. Well reviewed. It is. But not a fun yes. book. Incredibly well timed. But if book, but yeah. if your idea of fun is listening to me and Dan talk about occasionally bleak sci fi for an hour, you might want to become a patron. In addition to like listening, which you already mm-hmm. are. Becoming a patron gets you early access to episodes, you get merch, you get to come to our AMA once a month, and you get the Discord, which we always remind people is this wonderful little community. They have watch parties, they talk about things besides our show, believe it or not. And mm-hmm. it's just a nice it's a nice place to visit. Dan doesn't come around much, but maybe that I'm maybe that's maybe that's one of the reasons why it's such a nice place to visit. I don't know. <gasps> oh, Anna, <laughs> Anna. But I would just say in this pandemic plagued world, God knows social capital is an important value. And it would be safe to say the Discord provides that. So you should absolutely become a patron. Furthermore, as a thank you edition for patrons, when we make it to 250 supporters, we will come out with a special episode, patron only episode of a topic chosen by you, the patrons. And if giving us money isn't your thing, you can always rate and review, tell your friends and neighbors, maybe build a radio tower out of scrap metal. Who knows? Empower it somehow. Somehow you you power it. (laughs) You just find some power somewhere. (laughs) Yes. Dan and I enjoyed this movie so much that we are already (laughs) joking about it. And that also gives a hint to why we did this movie. Dan, why did we choose Reign of Fire? You know what? There are a lot of threats facing the world right now, Anna. I mean, people are coping with the Delta variant of COVID. There was a very ominous report about climate change that uh, came out recently. I saw a story about heat shields from wildfires. That's not good. But you know what? Maybe we need to think about fire-breathing dragons. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. No no national security discourse about that. And that's where we look to the movies. <laughs> I really wanted to do Reign of Fire because it is a part of my personal headcanon. There is a shot of a Time magazine cover in a montage that's supposed to communicate (laughs) the end of the world. And the cover of Time magazine says, is this the end? Which maybe you have to have worked at a news magazine to appreciate it. But that is like the most news magazine like headline you could possibly imagine. Because news magazine headlines are created to make you pick it up, right? Like, they're, usually, they're often questions. They're often like, is milk cancerous? That's the kind of thing they do. And I, Are your children's toys trying to kill you? There's a clear overlap between magazine covers and, like, local news, yes. like, teasers for future, future segments. And, and speaking of children, my ex-husband and I, he was a, is a journalist, very good journalist, did come up with one headline that beats, is this the end? Which is... Is your child stupid? <laughs> everyone would pick that up. I think everyone oh, yeah. would pick that up. You'd guaranteed audience for that one. 
yeah, fair enough. <laughs> also, Dan, this movie stars the future governor of Texas, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> so I think this is important intel for me to have as a journalist who will be covering that campaign. All right, all right, all right. But I would add that one lovely point is that that time headline, Is This the End? If memory serves, like the date is around 2010 or so. Mm-hmm. And the reason I know this is because when I've given the zombie talk, there was a headline, and it was either Time or Newsweek, right around the, about a year later with the tsunami, that basically had this, <laughs> is this the end? It was like the tsunami and like the financial crisis, all these bad things happening. And so it was the real life version of, of this. The only thing that was missing was, in fact, the dragons. Moving on. Let's get to the story behind the story. Anna, what did you learn about the making and the background of Reign of Fire? Well, there wasn't a lot. The IMDb page (laughs) for this movie is very short. I did learn that the director, Rob Bowman, his work might be familiar to our listeners. Uh, He directed a bunch of X-Files episodes and a bunch of Star Trek The Next Generation episodes. This also appears to be a passion project for Rob. I know, it's odd, but he he grew up in San Francisco and he told an interviewer he has these memories of going through earthquakes and how people reacted to Uh, them and how dealing with a crisis is when you see people's real personalities. So That's fair. And uh, I read another quote from the same interview. What I wanted to do is put regular people up against an overwhelmingly superior opponent. I think he might have overdone it on the overwhelmingly superior opponent on this, by the way. We can talk about that maybe in IR yeah. section. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's nothing more than a metaphor for something really difficult. Now, the most important part of this movie, <laughs> I did not know this, but it's, it's kind of a lovely detail, is that the dragon technology that's cited, the, the fact that they have two glands that secrete separately non-flammable mm-hmm. material, but then when they come together they're flammable that is Ignite. based yeah. on the bombardier beetles of venom and it is now kind of the standard thing cited in movies that have dragons like when they want to explain how the dragons have breathed fire um and Fascinating. yes uh, in harry potter and in game of thrones that is the technology the biotech of a dragon okay and i will say this uh, maybe we'll discuss it later too the dragons are really good the CGI in this movie holds up really well. Yeah, I would. Yes, absolutely. I would uh, stand by that claim. And it is clear in interviews that was actually kind of a priority. And I think it's clear in the um, movie that that was a priority. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely over tonal consistency. Yes, I'm going to agree with yeah. that, Anna. And, and Rob yeah. uh, Bowman said, I felt if we could get the audience to just accept one thing, which is the dragons, then I would provide an ultra realism around it. Uh, I accept the dragons. It's his definition of ultra realism that we might want to talk about a little bit later. And then this is a sentence from his Wikipedia entry, which has nothing (laughs) to do with Reign of Fire, but is, I just will read it. (laughs) On the strength of his direction for the television series Parker Lewis Can't Lose, he was offered to direct his first feature film, Airborne, a coming-of-age story involving teenage rollerbladers. <laughs> oh, you had to have been alive during the 90s to truly appreciate this, that This sentence. is, if they have to recreate the 90s for a theme park, this is the piece of 90s frozen in amber that they will, like, inject a syringe into and draw out the DNA of the 90s. 
all I can say on it is that I'm impressed you were able to read that without laughing. That I, was, that was oh, good. I had to practice. Believe me. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so cl- again, clearly we enjoyed this movie. So let's let's move on and talk about what makes it so enjoyable. We'll talk about the plot. Yes. All right. Which is indeed, I just want to interrupt. The plot is one reason it's enjoyable. That's true. Because it's true. preposterous. <laughs> <laughs> Let us get to act one, or what we will say, this is what happens when infrastructure week goes wrong. I was really proud of that, yeah. Let's meet Quinn, the 12-year-old child of a London underground engineer who has a bad day. And he has this bad day for two reasons. First, he did not get the scholarship for secondary school that his mom was clearly counting on to send him to a good school that would presumably lead him on to a promising life. And second, while exploring a tunnel for a new tube station, Quinn accidentally discovers a fire-breathing dragon that kills his mom and triggers the apocalypse. So, fast forward to 2020. Everyone is still sheltered in place, (laughs) but not from COVID, but because there be dragons. It turns out that scientists figure out that these dragons killed the dinosaurs and that their ash caused the ice ages. Governments threw everything they had at them, including nukes, but they just started sprouting up everywhere and civilization collapsed, hence that time cover that Anna referred to previously. We see grown-up Quinn, played by a bearded and dour Christian Bale, who is the leader of a small community occupying Bamberg Castle, trying to raise children and crops without drawing the attention of the fire-breathing dragons. Along with his loyal second-of-command, Creedy, played by very skinny and loose Gerard Butler. Not everyone is happy with this existence, and a small group from the castle attempts to flee. As they are harvesting tomatoes for the journey, however... (laughs) As one does, by the way. (laughs) As one does, uh, a dragon comes to roast the vines and partially roast the people. Quinn saves some of them, but he clearly recognizes that they are barely hanging on. As an IR scholar, I'm going to confess that I kind of think nuking dragons makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Which I know may be unfair for this movie, but nonetheless, I'm going to point it out. What say you? Dan. Yes. If things not making sense bother you, you are not going to enjoy this movie. (laughs) (laughs) However, if you are like me and enjoy taking notes in all capitals with multiple (laughs) question marks behind the notes, you will very much enjoy this movie. Because so much happens that's preposterous. It sort of proves the axiom, repeat until funny. Like, (laughs) just one preposterous plot point after another, and eventually Mm -hmm. you're just like, okay, sure. Like, bury me in nonsense and in a very swole Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll just do a few of the things that I, all caps, many question marks. That was a really fast nuclear winner. Apparently, they nuked the world, but somehow it's pretty green out there for scorched earth. That's a fair point. Yes, yes. Totally unrealistic. So one thing is introduced in this section that bothered me for the rest of the movie. Although when you get a tattoo, there's a point at which the pain of the tattoo actually just becomes like another thing. And it's not like enjoyable exactly, but it's part of the experience, let's say. It is part of the experience. Like childbirth. But keep going. <laughs> I wouldn't know about that. However, okay, what I will say is the uh, dragon ethology is so preposterous. Oh, you just dropped a word on it. Ethology is the behavior of a species, the total behavior of a species, like how it eats, how it mates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They go through some trouble to talk about all of these things in reference to the dragons, and none mm-hmm. of it makes any sense. A species mm-hmm. could not 
survive <laughs> under the conditions that are cited here. First of all, and this is the first thing we learn about the dragons, they eat ash. <laughs> Dan, did that bother you? Like on first viewing, by the way? Yes. Like, did you immediately kind of go, what? <laughs> so how would I put it? Uh, much like the tattoo thing, I think with these films, there is, you have to have a mental capacity to cabin the stuff that makes absolutely no sense and but makes no sense in a meaningless way i guess would be the way to put it in other words the fact that they eat ash really if you did not mention it in a film it would have no effect on the film whatsoever but it is a clear defect of the film as much as i think you and i both enjoyed the gonzo elements of the film one of the things that is just bad is whenever they have to lay exposition about the dragons because they do, they have to do it at a couple of different points, and all of it is so meaningless and and gobbledygooky and not carefully thought out that it it detract. It, it's not good, bad. It's bad, bad. They could have just done here. There be dragons, right? You know, like just there's dragons. Period. We all kind of know I, what dragons do. We all kind of know what dragons eat. <laughs> like I, ki- I, I have to admit, I would have killed to see a behind the scenes doc where Rob Bowman tells Christian Bale, "I want you to say this line like a pilot." <laughs> Say there be dragons, okay? <laughs> you gotta sell it. But they go out of their way to repeat some of these things about the dragons, like the eating of the ash. And yeah. this is something that maybe not all people would think about. But what I kept wondering is, where does the caloric value come from if all you mm. do is eat ash? Because dragons presumably need a lot of calories. Like the dragon metabolism, that they're doing a bunch. They're flying, they're breathing fire, they're I'm laying point hundreds out of that- eggs. There must have been a dormant or hibernation phase in this because clearly one of the other issues is, you know, in the very first act, Quinn discovers the dragon who apparently has been underground for thousands of years. A male dragon who's been underground for thousands of years, not starving or emaciated, apparently clearly alive and able to breathe fire. But like, I don't know what that dragon's been eating. And and also just one. Yeah. Just the one. Mm -hmm. Or like, I mean... They could have just not said anything. I think that's the thing that we we both believe. Like, right. you could have just done kind of hand-wavy thing. They could have discovered more than one dragon. Anyway, anyway. I'm going to probably talk about this a little bit more because it does <laughs> become a part of the movie in an almost intentional way. It's <laughs> one of the things about this movie that I I eventually came to love as you know while watching it is that mm-hmm. it's a kind of confused movie. it doesn't know what it is like it doesn't know if it's intentionally funny or not it doesn't Mm -hmm. know if it's like b movie just hand wave all the science away or if they're going to try to do some kind of hard sci-fi like here's the logic (laughs) and it would also be safe to say some of the actors clearly interpreted what the movie was very, very differently from some of the other actors. <laughs> two okay? in particular, yes. And, yes, and two in particular. And, and that is one of the things that makes the movie simultaneously not great, but at the same time completely watchable because it is kind of like watching a, a train car accident in progress. It is endlessly it's fascinating. unstoppable it, force meets immovable object. Yes. That is what happens in this film. Yeah. And I would say McConaughey represents the unstoppable force. And Christian Bale represents the immovable object. And there's mm-hmm. just the, this, it, it becomes sublime. 
That's that's all I can say is that it's just such a waste of energy, like a zero sum waste. It becomes a black hole. There's so little energy between them. There's so much in different right. movies. Yeah. It turns into something bigger than that. <laughs> the movie is bigger than anyone. It is it is a fundamental clash of acting styles. That is that is absolutely correct. And I, I want to add here because it is important. If you're deciding whether or not to watch the movie, I would say if you haven't watched it, stop now. Watch the movie. It is yes. worth it. They're both amazing actors. Mm-hmm. Like they make very different choices. They're amazing like, in very <laughs> different ways. Different choices and what yes. the movie is about and what the tone yeah. is, etc. Mm-hmm. But they're both. I. So watchable, like mm-hmm. it, which we all know from having seen them. Mm-hmm. But it made me start thinking about just there are so few actors out there that you can just be like, oh, that person's on screen. I wonder what they're going to do, you know? Right. And that is one of the things that makes this movie better than the sum of its parts. So let's talk about those characters. Dan, please. All right, let's move on to act two. You know what this movie needs? More McConaughey. So, just as all seems dour, Matthew McConaughey shows up in a tank column with U.S. soldiers playing one... You have to listen to his name. His name is Denton Van Zan. He claims to be a dragon slayer and the leader of a group called the Kentucky Irregulars. Quinn believes him because he sees the crazy in Denton's eyes and because nothing says the U.S. military like a bald head and a wispy beard. (laughs) Sure enough, a dragon soon shows up, and he's killed using an extremely convoluted combination of 3D scanners, archangels, a high-tech helicopter piloted by a comely pilot named Alex, and a giant harpoon gun, which is the thing that actually kills the dragon. I just want to point out, sorry, they never use this tactic again. Right. This is like... (laughs) And the high-tech stuff doesn't work, to be clear. In the end, what kills the dragon is Christian Bale rides a horse over a hill, and then, you know, Denton Van Zandt fires this very low-tech harpoon gun that, in fact, I think we see a version of it in Game of Thrones later <laughs> that kills the dragon. So I hope to talk more about the military tactics employed in this movie there we go yeah oh yeah that'll that'll happen anyway the brits celebrate the victory but van zan berates the brits for celebrating when some of his men has died van zan then finally explains to quinn his master plan his force has diminishing numbers i'll say by the way yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh and he needs quinn's men but he thinks he can kill off the entire problem apparently all of the dragons are female except one there is one male that fertilizes all the eggs. So, according to Van Zan, we kill the male. We kill the species. Van Zan wants to use Quinn's men. Quinn says no, because the last time this was tried, the dragon backtracked to the origins of the attack and roasted everyone in the redoubt. Quinn explains, I'm trying to keep them alive, and Van Zan says, you're just letting them die slower. Van Zandt tries to recruit the Brits, then when that doesn't work, tries to draft the Brits. He and Quinn then fight, and Van Zandt kicks Quinn's ass. Side note here, McConaughey is in magic Mike shape during this fight. Amazing. Just amazing. Yes. Anna, as much fun as I have watching a crazy Matthew McConaughey performance, and I enjoyed watching this performance, I kind of think his attempt at charismatic leadership here was pretty demented. I mean, (laughs) you know... You, if your if your ultimate plan, which he seems to have had, is I am going to attack the male by recruiting people 
from this redoubt, then you don't berate them. You don't say, personally, you disgust me. And then try to recruit. That just makes no sense. It makes no goddamn sense. Sorry, that was my all caps note. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot criticize his performance because it is so enjoyable. (laughs) However, the logic of the movie, which again, we should not bother with, really. No. Because the screenwriter didn't. Right. (laughs) The character is compared to Colonel Kurtz in uh, some reviews, and I think that's a very good comparison. However, in Apocalypse Now and Heart of Darkness, that character is recognized as crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's part of the story that Mm -hmm. the character is demented. Yeah. In this movie, no one seems to notice that he's crazy. Like, it's just part of his personality and they tr- they trust him oh my god mm-hmm. they th- he he's gonzo but not crazy however if they thought about it for a little little bit like no one would follow this man his yeah. kill rate <laughs> for every mission is like half <laughs> like there was a brief moment <laughs> that's coming up in the film where van zandt for like a brief second realizes that there's something bad is about to happen or like it's not a good situation. And there's a brief shot of his like chief lieutenant and like the lieutenant has this look of doubt on his face. And I'm like, why didn't you have that look 15 (laughs) years ago? (laughs) And then there's other stuff like how did they get across the Atlantic? I think there's some explanation, but it's a pretty significant feat at this point. If the dragons have like torched everything and everything in the air. And, And then how do you get the tank? You know, where are these people? Where is he getting his other, you know, soldiers? Because, again, the kill rate is... I don't think a general in an army... <laughs> uh, with that last, casualty ratio... They'd, they'd get court-martialed. You, you can't, you can't <laughs> last 15 years like that. No, that's not going to work. Trust me, no. And as I said, this movie is, is cannot make up its mind. There are some things that are seem like they're intentionally funny. And then there's <laughs> Christian Bale. Who is never funny. Who is never funny. But my personal favorite line here is when Creedy, and Gerard Butler actually seems to, much as he does throughout his career, he seems to straddle that line between funny and serious pretty well. Like he can kind of go both ways Mm -hmm. on it. Like he can play a character that's just self-aware enough that it makes the comedy work, Mm -hmm. but not so self-aware that it's like a parody. Right. So he and Christian Bale have a line exchange where he says, as they've let in the crazy people, to the castle, <laughs> he says to Christian Bale, don't you think we'd be easy meat for these guys? And Christian Bale responds, you weren't there. <laughs> His reference is to the meeting that he and Van Tan had outside yeah. the castle. Ladies and gentlemen, anyone who's listening, anyone who's seen this movie, we were there. We were there for that exchange, and I don't understand why he let him in. Like, it's just this, like, weird, like, it's the hand-waving to end all hand-waving. It's just, it seems to have been a man-off, I would say. Yes, we'll get to this a little bit later, but there's different kinds of masculinity shot through this movie. Because one of the odder elements of this film is that the redoubt that Quinn and Creedy are protecting seems primarily populated by children and men. There are not a lot of women there, which is very weird. Or they don't show them. They don't show them, which might be even worse. And so you understand why they have this protective element to it. But yes, I would add, and I agree with you, by the way, about Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler was actually a delight in this film. And, mm-hmm. he, and he, 
one of the notes I have is why is Quinn leading this group and not yeah, Creedy? I actually had the same <laughs> thought. I really did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, it's literally in the film where Creedy says, you know, I'm your best friend, and even I think you're like a bit much at times. I think I think you're a bastard or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 So let's move on. Because it, right. it just gets better. So Oh yes. Uh <laughs> Act Three. Bad dragons, bad. Van Zan leads an armored column toward London. But the road is blocked, leaving the column really, really super exposed. (laughs) Not the best advanced forward planning, I'm just going to say. As Alex in the helicopter tries to find another route, the male dragon roasts the column uh, and then heads on to Quinn's castle. Quinn and Creedy manage to get the women and children to a safe bunker, but the dragon kills Creedy just after he looks forlornly at Quinn. I love that shot of Creedy just looking at Quinn. We're like, you know, anyone who's I'm going to die now. Yes, it's it's the I'm going to die now (laughs) shot. And and again, Gerard Butler does it very well. Van Zandt and Alex and the few remaining U.S. survivors make it back to the castle. Quinn proposes that they fly back to London, just Van Zandt, Alex, and Quinn, and destroy the male's nest. He knows a route along the Thames where they can get through, apparently. Anna, again, I hate to try to ground this film in any coherent logic whatsoever, but if I was Quinn, I'm not sure I would place any trust in Van Zandt at this point, given that Quinn proved to be completely right, and Van Zandt was not just wrong, but just got his last, you know, appreciable force roasted. I will say that the only thing that makes sense about this plan is that Quinn made it. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's not much of an improvement on Van Sand. Actually, you know what? It is an improvement because he's not risking as many men. Like, right. is it a good idea to take a column of men, essentially march them all together into what is a self-created box canyon, leaving yourself open to what you know to be superior firepower from the enemy in the air? I don't know. Did they teach that at West Point, Dan? They do teach that at West Point, but I don't need to go to West Point to know that's a shit plan. Okay? It's a bad, bad plan. All right? If for nothing else, you this is why you have advanced scouting parties. All right? If this was done rationally, you send someone, not a large force, you know, someone in advance to run point to see... Are there obstacles in the way? Could your column of tanks, which can't exactly reverse very easily, get stuck and be easy pickings for uh, the enemy male dragon? So, yeah, it's not good planning. Uh, It was poor tactics and poor strategy. And and here I'll just point out, if this is the extent of military strategy that he has, (laughs) he must have started with a really big force of men. Like, <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, again, essentially they've killed what, didn't he say at one point they've killed 200 dragons or killed at yeah. least 100 dragons? Yeah. And I still don't know how they did that. Because like the all archangel jumping thing, which we get, we only saw once and didn't work when they tried it, seems like it would have a very high fatality ratio. It, well, it killed, of the five people involved right. in that strategy, it killed three of them. Yeah. So. That's not a good tactic if you're concerned about if unless you have an unlimited supply of men. So no. Yeah. So I actually I'm beginning to suspect that Van Sand wasn't actually in the military. That's what I'm beginning to suspect. It's possible. That he about. just had a cool vest and no shirt, unfortunately. <laughs> he he found a but really he did cool have vest. Ro- you know what? Maybe in the apocalyptic future rock hard abs are your are, are the only you shirt it. you need. Exactly. <laughs> There we go. Moving on. And we close with Act 4, Now We Rebuild. So they get to where the male nests, and we get an establishing shot of hundreds of dragons 
that we never see again, I would add, throughout the entire rest of the battle. Hundreds of dragons apparently occupying the sky. Not a real problem because these three people are still able to somehow sneak into where the male nest is. Alex, Van Zan, and Quinn are going to attack at dusk because that's when dragons have poor eyesight. And they are going to attack with explosive arrows? Sure, why not? Why not, you know, preview Hawkeye from uh, the MCU? Van Zandt does fire his explosive bolt and then is killed in an act of self-sacrifice so that Quinn can find uh, the explosive arrow that he had dropped. Quinn manages to fire his at exactly the right moment, igniting the male dragon and killing him. Victory! Fast forward three months. Alex has let her hair grow out and it looks pretty good. Oh, also, there have been no dragon attacks, and Quinn's old crew has constructed a radio out of spare metal. <laughs> the good news is, is that it looks like civilization is starting to rebuild, and they are receiving contact from others. The bad news is, is that it's the French. <laughs> Still, on the whole, a hopeful ending. Anna, the fact that we heard from the French first does give rise to an obvious question. Uh, do you think that other nationalities survived better, worse, or about the same as the Brits? I just want to point out the French are really good at retreating. Ooh. So I'm not surprised <laughs> that they were able to shelter in place pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. The other thought I had, I mean, this is this is just a comment on, again, the overkill that the movie presents in terms of how dominant the dragons are. Like, mm-hmm. again, if you've seen the movie, maybe you understand what I'm talking about. But they present the dragons as so apocalyptic modern technology there's no way to defeat them they withstand nuclear blasts mm-hmm. right yeah to then just have like one dragon be the solution like kill the one dragon you kill the species that doesn't make sense but we were talking about nationalities in the logic of the movie there is no place on earth that has any done any better than england in terms of like what it looks like i suppose mm-hmm. and what nationalities might do better i mean I don't know. I can't make a joke even because of this <laughs> the overkill of the story. And speaking I of like over- to think, you know what? I like to, here's the joke I would make. I bet the dragons would still respect Swiss neutrality. <laughs> That's a good one. That's good. The only <laughs> thought that I had was that this really ruins your plans to go to New Zealand in case of mm-hmm. apocalypse. Like mm-hmm. New Zealand's going to get it too. Australia's oh, off yeah. the map. Well, also that. like the moment you get in an airplane, like, you know, you'd be easy prey for the Well, the or so they too. present... I, let me put it this way. I, your complaints about this sort of remind me that right now, the, the dragons remind me a little bit about the White Walkers in mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. Not the dragons, but actually the White Walkers. And the, and the same thing in that the White Walkers seemed like an unstoppable force right up until the moment where they were destroyed by Arya in a single episode that, that was an incredible letdown given how much they had been the big bad. Why didn't you do that stuff. earlier? There's a lot of yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. if it was that easy. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, so Dan, I mean, we've referenced this before, but... Yes. Is there IR in this movie? What do we do when we wake, Anna? We look for IR with both eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Admittedly, it is a bit hard to find international relations in this film. I think there are two small things that are relevant for international relations. The first is that some conflicts really are zero-sum. You know, there are instances in which... There is no possible cooperation. As Quinn says at one point, only one species is getting out of this alive. So there is no negotiating with dragons. There is no bargaining with dragons. It's just an unremitting threat. And as a result, it is not enough that humans must win. Dragons must lose. That's how it works. And there there are instances in international relations where that is the nature of the conflict. 
Second, that said, alliance warfare is hard. All right. There is honestly a direct quote in this movie from Creedy who says only one thing worse than a dragon, Americans, which is just a shit quote, frankly. But like the point being, if Brits and Americans have a hard time coordinating action (laughs) while facing an existential threat, then it's no wonder global civilization collapsed because the Anglo-American alliance is one of the strongest alliances, you know, historically in international relations. And if, you know, all it took was like a little bit of the apocalypse for Creedy to go all, oh, Americans, God, don't get me started on them. Then, you know, yeah, mankind deserves what it gets in this instance. Another example of the movie not being able to decide its tone. You know, because like that is a hilarious line, but it's mm-hmm. completely inappropriate to the tone of the movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and I just want to say something about the British American Alliance as, a, you know, a reader of news might recognize this, but it always makes me kind of giggle that it's usually referred to as a special relationship, right? Like that's our special <laughs> yes. relationship with Britain, which, right. you know, it's special. It's yeah. special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Anna? Dan. Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this film? Dan. Anna. The dragons are capitalism. (laughs) That actually might be the most coherent explanation for why dragons eat ash. I have to say. I'll I'll just go with that. Indeed. Uh, it's apocalyptic capitalism. Although, actually, yeah. I don't need to add anything. Yeah. No, no, no. That is the mic drop of analyses, I think. So now I shall do that. Dragons are yeah. capitalism. The end. Let's move on. Mic drop. Okay, now we move to themes and quotes. Um, I, I'm going to admit this film is sufficiently gonzo that I don't have any themes. It was hard for me to detect anything. But, but Anna, I, I understand you did find a theme to talk about? Yes. And... What's amazing is I think it might be intentional. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's doubly impressive given this film. Keep going. This movie compares three modes of masculinity. Ooh. There's Van oh. Zant, who is brutal, mm-hmm. remorseless, self-sacrificing, mm-hmm. right? There's Quinn, mm-hmm. who is nurturing, sentimental, and logical. Like, Quinn's plans make a lot more sense than Van Zant's. Not the one to go after the dragon, but... Right. The let's farm, let's rebuild, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You may be wondering where the third form of masculinity <laughs> comes from. The dragon. Oh, it's, it's literally a, it's, toxic masculinity. That is correct, Dan. That is correct. <laughs> and we can sort of see where the movie lands as far as like what mode it endorses. I have to say it's the mode I endorse as well. Mm-hmm. However, Van Zant goes out in the most metal way possible it is it's pretty great it's a death scene that matches his performance which is impressive to be able to do that i mean (laughs) let's put it this way if i if i had to choose my form of death that would be what i would do that's the highest praise i can offer fucking metal man it is yeah all right dan what's that dan oh i believe there's debris i think we're in the middle of debris we could be in the debris field I think we're in the debris field, and this is the place where we point out stuff that we didn't point out earlier. Dan, yes. please go first. Okay, 
there were a lot of cute things in this film that I should should mention. First of all, there were a lot of kids in this sort of redoubt that Quinn and Creedy are involved. They all wear matching blue jammies. I don't know where they got them from. But the point is the kids look goddamn adorable. And so that was lovely. And also cute, and indeed I think this is easily the most charming scene in the entire film, is in the beginning you see Quinn and Creedy entertaining the children by essentially doing a puppet version of The Empire Strikes Back, which was just... Bale and Butler do a, a wonderful job in terms of performing. And also the kids' expressions on their faces when they learned that Luke was actually Darth Vader's son was priceless. <laughs> they were like legitimately shocked. And I was like, yeah, exactly. It was, yeah. it was whoever directed those kids in that scene, very good. And I believe they actually used the correct quote. Yes. From the movie because it's people, it is a Mandela effect. People think the line is, Luke, I am your father. And, it's and he says, no, I am your father. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, exactly. Also, just one last thing, which is because Matthew McConaughey's name is Denton Van Zan, which like props to the screenwriter for like trying to come up with his, as demented a name as possible. As it turns out, that is also the name of William Fickner's character or the same last name as William Fickner's character in Heat. He plays a money launderer named, I believe, Roger Van Zan. So as far as I am concerned, Heat and Reign of Fire are in the <laughs> same fictional universe. And in this universe, Denton and Roger are brothers. Fittingly enough, yeah. Heat and Fire. Are, yeah. Can you, you, I mean, obviously, they, they fit well so well together. Yeah. That's right. It's the expanded oven universe. And now I want to see what Michael Mann would have done with this film, I confess. <laughs> you could argue Collateral is in some ways... Michael Mann's effort to make Reign of Fire, where mm-hmm. Jamie Foxx is playing the Christian Bale character and Tom Cruise is playing the Matthew McConaughey character. Boom. I just I just analyzed the shit out of this. You did. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about the Empire Strikes Back scene, which yeah. is the scene people remember yeah. from this movie. If you have seen this movie, that scene, which actually takes place in like the first 10 minutes, which I didn't remember, yeah. like is the most charming, the most ingenious, you know, uh, as far as like envisioning future entertainment, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It is worth noting that they get the line right mm-hmm. because there's other stuff that's a little off. Right. And it's an example of narrative drift, Dan. Also, actually, <laughs> what I what I did like in that scene is they don't say Luke and Darth Vader. They say the White Knight and the Black yes. Knight, which actually is really a cool... That is a cool drift, as it were. It, drift can be great yeah, um, as yeah. myths change over time. It's just right. interesting to me. It's, it's only been 20 years. <laughs> They're already like... Uh, people don't know what Jedis are. Yeah, exactly. I do think this film sets a record for things that don't make sense. <laughs> this coming after we talked about Buckaroo Banzai, that is quite a statement. I, I also will say it, it's weird, even within the logic of the movie, there's like two scenes of dragon vision. <laughs> like you wouldn't even really yeah, notice them. I No, that, that again is an example of like, I'm sorry. It's like just where you're lazy. Seeing, like dra- you see, you supposedly you're seeing you know, through the eyes of the. Dragon. It's dragon cam. It's basically dragon what is cam, yeah. what is it? It's like when they in the Terminator when at some yeah. point you see it from the Terminator's perspective. There's no other way to put this. This is lazy direction. In other words, <laughs> it, it, no, it is. It's like we're just going to do this without any reason for doing it. Like really, like did it add anything? I don't think so. And. I mean, there could have been a logic to doing it if you wanted to actually have the male dragon be a legitimate character or... Yeah, it just doesn't... It just... It's pointless. Right. That's the point. It was pointless. Yes. 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 The last thing I want to mention, and again, this is a thing that it could either be serious or not. (laughs) When Creedy meets his death, Mm -hmm. he is carrying a single fire extinguisher. (laughs) (laughs) 
there is a big concern here. Well, Anna. yes. This is the, like the big bad dragon. <laughs> the idea. And I think actually what happens is Christian Bale throws him the fire extinguisher. <laughs> it's kind of like handing a slingshot, you know, to someone <laughs> like going off to face an army or like a water gun. That would yeah. actually have been actually super funny. <laughs> oh, if he gave him super soaker, that actually would have been good. Yes. yes. But instead, and also it, within the seriousness of the scene, the way he accepts the single fire extinguisher, it's like, oh, all right, yeah, go. You're, you really are going to die now. You really <laughs> are. <laughs> okay, Dan, it's time. Yes. It's time. It's time for tea and biscuits or coffee and biscuits. There we go. Not tea and biscuits, because tea is just weird water, like, yes. drenched through, like, sour stuff. It is time to talk about Ted Lasso. Excellent. It, it is time to talk about episode three of Ted Lasso. If you have not seen it, here there be spoilers. Uh, mm-hmm. You might want to shut us off and come back later. Right. The team still hates Jamie, which is an obstacle to him being able to improve the team's performance and to grow as a character in the show. He is clearly humbled, but the only way he knows how to get people to like him is buying them stuff. And of course, our Richmond lads are not so cheap as to be bought. We meet Led Tasso. (laughs) I don't know if you would have guessed, but Led Tasso is Ted Lasso's alter ego, a mean guy. Yes, very mean. Designed to unite the team in a common enemy and remind us that Jason Sudeikis was once on a very mediocre season or few seasons of SNL. Ooh. The team does find a common enemy, Dan. Yes. And that foe is capitalism. I knew it. I knew you were going to go there. I knew it. That's why the capitalism explanation of Reign of Fire was so short. You actually were more interested in Ted Lasso on this one. Well, I'm Keep not going to go too far on this. I mean, capitalism yes. is all of our common enemy. There but it's just go. the team yeah. t- manages to recognize it mm-hmm. in the form of Dubai Air, which yeah. does not exist. I want to point out that they could have gone after Dubai as an actual problematic place. Well, then that goes into the problem of capitalism, Anna. I assume oh. Apple does not want to needlessly alienate <laughs> Dubai. Right. But speaking of needlessly alienating, Dan. Yes. Or needfully alienating, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Sam appears in an ad for the airline, and his dad tells him, significantly, Dan, it's his dad, his dad, <laughs> his father, who tells him there's a link between the company and environmental destruction in his native Nigeria. He decides to tape over the company name on his jersey in the kind of Lassoian spirit we've come to expect, everyone joins in. Then there is a very instructive scene, like an ABC, basically, about mm. how athletes should use their platform to discuss political issues. It's a clinic, as they say in sports. Yes. They put on a clinic. And of course, Dan, that never backfires in the real world. It's, <laughs> it's always worked out real great for any major athlete or team that takes a political stand. Yep. In this world, however, it seems to cause a problem, but the extent of this problem, I, I do not think will match what it might have been in real life. We can talk more about that later. Yeah. In other news, mm-hmm. Rebecca reconnects with her best friend and the lasso <clears throat> buddy, Sassy, buddy. and her daughter, Nora, <laughs> and Nora convinces Rebecca to accept the team's activism for now. Roy still has unresolved issues with Jamie, and he takes them out on air with one of the show's best lines. (laughs) And then the plot device of banter, a dating app, is introduced. And we get the sense that Sharon might help Jamie. Dan, what did we like? 
Well, so I'm not going to lie. I think this was my least favorite episode of Ted Lasso so far, which does not mean I didn't enjoy it, but it means that that it, it's not... I, we'll talk about the issues with it. But that said, even this one had some wonderful quotes. So Ted at one point saying, make like Dunstan Union and bring it on, which I just, as a fan of Bring It On, I really liked. But even better than that was Roy on camera saying one about... One of the best Saying lines. about Jamie Tart. Yeah. I hope he dies of the terminal condition of being a little bitch. And it's just, it's so wonderful. It, I, again, have to, I have to add, he also yeah. calls him a Muppet, which yes. is <laughs> one of the best insults. I mean, Muppets are great. It's not really an insult, but I understand how he means it. So yes. calling people Muppets. When Rebecca starts using the app, one of the things I liked was that one of the possible partners for, for Rebecca is called Ginger Professor. So as an academic, I did enjoy that. But I I think this is the first time I the show made me laugh out loud and I think did so in an unintentional way, which is there is a sports reporter asking, at one point asked uh, Sam in the post-game press conference, a game in which they lost, by the way, I would add, asking him, are you openly accusing the Nigerian government of corruption? <laughs> And I get that sports reporters are primarily focused on sports and don't necessarily pay that much attention to for the front page. But come on, read a paper, dude. Like, are you openly accusing the Nigerian government of corruption? Yeah, I'm openly accusing yeah. the Nigerian. Like, that's not groundbreaking. Like, that's not a groundbreaking assertion. Not I exactly. I yeah. wondered if it was intentional because it's asked by Trent Krim, who is kind of a minor character who we've actually come to like a little bit. He presents himself as pompous, but... Yeah, you know. yeah. He also should know better. If it's Trent Krim. If it's Trent Krim, then he should absolutely know. He I mean, like, absolutely know better. Yes. And also, they highlight the question. Like, he starts to ask it as a follow up, and someone interrupts him, and he's kind of like, no, I need to finish. Yeah. And he asks him that. It's a very odd moment. And again, I, I think, think it was unintentional. I, I, I really do. unintentional. Yeah. So, I'm going to talk about the stuff that I liked. Mm-hmm. Sam. I love Sam. Sam's a great character. Yes. More Sam is good. It's been good. And I particularly like the moment where Sam actually put Jamie in his place in practice. That was lovely. Yes. So I'm happy to see him step up to more of a central role. I also really liked there's a part where they're talking about the British version of American Girl dolls. Mm-hmm. And it turns out all the British dolls are orphans, which they, it distinguishes them from the mm-hmm. Americans. Yes. Also, uh, the way that Ted Lasso introduces Sam's press conference is a pretty dignified way of sharing, you know, the platform, as they say. And this is something that when I say they put on a clinic of how to have athletes do activism, I'm not really kidding. (laughs) Like, if you are a coach of a team and this happens, do it the way that they do it here. Mm Mm-hmm. They asked Ted if it, he was bothered by the display or whatever, and he says, no, I think it was important for him to do. And the quote is, when bad things happen to people like me, you all tend to write about it. Sam had to get your attention. And he doesn't say white guys, but it's understood and perfect. Just Right. No, it's, and I will say, like, that was an interesting Ted Lasso line. It, like, Sudeikis pl- underplays that line. Yeah. It's not done over the top. It, and it was done, you know, very Again, well. Clinic. So, yeah, clinic. Just is show clinic. this show this to coaches. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Perfect way to do it. Mm-hmm. Ted describing Chuck E. Cheese. Actually, Ted and Coach Beard <laughs> describing yes. Chuck E. Cheese. Because Coach Beard has a line, he's a mouse, but also a musician. So <laughs> that's good. This is probably my least favorite episode ever of either season. Yeah. I mean. And unfortunately, one of the reasons it's my least favorite episode is the thing that I agree with. Is <laughs> <laughs> the capitalism element. Is the fact that they do this activism that's important. Presented as a genuine need for it. 
mm-hmm. like that there isn't much attention paid to this you know environmental destruction happening and there are nigerians on the team and they do band together it's a great i mean it would be wonderful if the world worked like that i want the world to work like that right <laughs> And, yet, and so somehow it really bothered me, I guess, maybe because for me, it's actually kind of personal that it doesn't work like that. It bothered me that it was so far afield from reality. So what I would say, Anna, here is that part of the magic of Ted Lasso is that it walks a, a, a tightrope that very few other shows have been able to pull off. It is simultaneously grounded in the real world so that you believe that these are things that are actually happening, but nonetheless has sufficient amounts of whimsy and good spirit i guess would be the way to put it good karma that you it is a heartwarming show in a lot of ways without it being mawkish in any way and the problem with this episode and particularly with this plot line is that the realism gets blown up mm-hmm. because there is no way i think an actual club would tolerate its leading member doing something that would destroy the relationship with its primary sponsor. sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a small sponsor. This is what's on their jersey. And so that was the part where I was like, having seen the subsequent episode, this is not talked about in the subsequent episode, which is, again, another problem, because presumably there should be implications of this. Oh, my God. Yeah, that makes me hate it more. I hate. It makes me dislike it even more because... Maybe it'll come up in the episode after this one. I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying like they're not going to pick it up at all. But again, because it, it falls off the tightrope. Sorry, go ahead. Because I think the thing that distinguishes great comedy from good comedy mm-hmm. is stakes. Yeah. And Ted Lasso has been great about introducing stakes to what mm-hmm. is a whimsical show. Right. Right. Like there are real feelings that usually they do it in the form of feelings. Mm-hmm. Right. There's not so much the realism of working at a British soccer team. Right. But there's the realism of how people feel when certain things happen to them. And it's the like, relationships between them. And when you make fun of someone, that has a consequence. Right. In a lot of comedy, it would just be there's a line that you make fun of somebody and then your relationship continues. Right. Yeah. They chose a plot that has tremendous real world mm-hmm. consequences and just left just didn't do anything with it. The yeah. only consequence of this action is an emotional consequence and then it brings the team together. Right. Right. Yeah, I think that it falls off the beam. And I I feel especially also, again, especially sad, not just because it's something that I would love to see communicated, but it could have been better. Right. Like, well, because the thing about activism mm -hmm. is that there are consequences. Real activism has consequences. Yeah. You know, sometimes good. But sometimes bad. And that's why that's why it's risky. That's why people hesitate to do it. But that's mm-hmm. also why it's worthwhile. I think your point about the reason Ted Lasso works is the stakes come from emotions highlights why this was a difficult show episode for them. Because you're right. The stakes are partly about emotions. It's Sam's relationship with his father. But really what it is is what happens if you actually take major risks that actually affect mm-hmm. the economics of the franchise? I think precisely because this is a sort of unfamiliar grand for Ted Lasso, they don't handle it terribly well. I agree with you. If they had put more effort in, there was a way in which you could have done an episode about this kind of activism that could have been done in a Ted Lasso way that could have also acknowledged the stakes. That's not what this episode was, though. And it that's the problem. Have, it could have acknowledged it in a way that would be very Ted Lasso-in, which is it could backfire. Yeah. Like that would be a more realistic, not just more realistic, period, but also be a more interesting thing for Ted to have to handle. Yeah. You know, because and also it would be instructive because most activism, quote unquote, fails. Mm. You know, most things that you do to try and make something happen in a big system won't work. Right. 
And the point is that sometimes we keep doing them. Yeah. Sometimes the consequences are too much. Mm-hmm. And I also I think also that's not said enough in popular culture. Like, for instance, I would point out that uh, Sam, as a black man, mm-hmm. would face probably bigger consequences than Jamie. Oh, yeah, there would totally be a bad I, there's a, I don't yeah. know if you've heard this guy. His name rhymes with Skalin Skurfernick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There, there's been some consequences for that guy. No, really? I hadn't, I hadn't know. I, I don't know who you're talking about. That's and he, he did it anyway. You know, he made a choice to, that he would accept the consequences pretty much. Yeah. And yet, also, there are other f- American football players that have said, basically, I can't do this because the consequences are too much. Right. Like LeBron James on China is, is frankly, appalling. There's no other way to put it. But actually, right. the, the example of, what was his name? Sh- Stalin Schopernik or whatever. Con- How, con- yes, I know, Stalin Schopernik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that example actually makes me realize there was a way in which you could have had a Ted Lasso yeah. appropriate plot which is if he had done it if dubai had pulled but then you would actually had another corporate sponsor come in and say we actually want to be associated equally with- bad <laughs> no not equally bad but like you know maybe but it would have been cynical but they would have wanted to have been associated with sam because of that message much yeah. like nike wound up hiring kaepernick because they wanted to be associated with him so that you know in some ways that would have actually been an appropriate Ted Lasso way of uh, and showing the stakes. I think that could have been a better plot. I think we the, pl- the conclusion is write, write this. we need to write a spec <laughs> script for Ted Lasso and you know join the staff for season three. I think that's that's it. I want to emphasize this point because again, I don't think it gets discussed enough, like in the news in popular culture, which is sometimes it is okay to make the choice not to make a stand. That yeah. sounds terrible, especially maybe coming from me, but maybe also people will understand that's just true. No, the risks the risks of social activism are real, and particularly for someone like Sam, extremely real. And so, and also, this might be weird, but I have to admit, his father texting him the the messages his father gave him, I was actually slightly appalled by. Yeah, like he was right to point out this is a bad company; it's doing but bad things. But he should have been like, "Dear son, I don't know if you know." Yeah, but, but instead, he's like, "You're you bring shame, and you're like a." It was actually pretty insulting, and I thought. It was completely unremarked on later on in the show, and I was surprised by that. But, like, I hope that comes up again because it was weird. I want to give a real-world example of the the times when it makes sense and it's honorable to not necessarily take a stand. Right. Which is the rhetoric around survivors of sexual assault who come forward Mm -hmm. when they're called brave. Mm -hmm. That really bothers me. Yeah. Because every survivor is brave. Mm Mm-hmm. Whether you go public or not. Right. Going public is something also, again, white women who have a certain level of income, much easier for them to do. Much, much easier for them to do. And yet the women that choose not to do it for whatever reason, mm-hmm. there is no less bravery. There's no less strength. And I guess I'm just saying, hey, folks, think about it next time you call a woman brave. Just we're all brave. And maybe that's what I learned. Dan, <laughs> <laughs> we're all brave. That's what I learned from this episode of Television. The only thing I think I, I think I learned was that everyone occasionally needs to embrace their inner boss bitch from time to time. That was actually the part of the plot I liked the most was Rebecca bonding with her goddaughter, I think it is. And also the fact that the goddaughter had a wicked crush on Sam. That was adorable. And, you know, at the end. I don't feel like I learned very much in this episode. No, no, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll make another criticism, which is the dad stuff is is getting pretty heavy-handed. Like, yeah, a lot of a lot of characters have dad issues. That's true. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, 
So uh, we're going to wrap up here. I will remind folks, if you want to give us money, there are good reasons to do so. You will be able to join our AMAs. You get merch, get early access to episodes. You get to join the Discord. You get to know that you're helping send Karen's puppy to college. Mm -hmm. Alan might want to be an ethnic studies major. You never know. Yeah, never know. And I don't think I have anything more to add, except, again, oh, one more last thing. 250 patrons, we're going to do a special patrons-only episode of the Patrons' Choice. We don't know what that will be. We hope we get to 250. But Dan, until then. Keep this channel open for more.